Well, good morning. What a joy we've had this morning to worship the Lord Jesus Christ together, and what a, a privileged time we have as a church to just um, gather together in corporate worship. This has been uh, such a joy and such an encouragement to my heart, and I want to thank Elder Bob and the praise team for leading us in that time of song. Um, hope you all had a great week, and um, just rejoicing and thinking about heaven as we uh, go through the week. Um, I also hope that you were able to uh, check out our website and see the Shin sabbatical update. Did you guys all see that? Okay, the Shin's uh, first month in Arizona, and I'll tell you just one thing to say about the Shin's is their life is never boring, and they're having a great time out there, and um, we just praise God for um, just the things that they're learning, and they'll be able to bring back to us when they come back and uh, minister to us. I uh, just want to say a word about this whole boxing thing. Um, just uh, if you get a chance to talk to James, maybe uh, encourage him to enjoy that while he's in Arizona, but maybe uh, you know, leave it in Arizona because I'm just deathly afraid that he's going to come back on a boxing kick and want to do this as a pastoral staff. And um, you know, I could just see him just, you know, Dan will be such a bonding experience. We'll just box together. And um, actually, I'm not so much afraid of boxing Pastor James as I am of boxing Pastor Joe. Um, <laughs> if you were at the men's retreat, uh, <laughs> you saw him hit, hit a punching bag, and it's a, it's a fearsome thing. And so <laughs> we're looking forward to having the shins back with us. In the meantime, we are going full speed ahead with our ministry here at Cornerstone in the fall, as you know that we are serving the Lord uh, busily, and we are in the middle of a three-part series on heaven. This uh, series is entitled Heaven, Turning Our Hearts Toward Home, and we are learning in the series that this earth is not our home, that heaven is our home, and it is good and is right, and it is necessary for us as believers in Christ to set our hearts there and to study about this place because this is the place where we will spend all of eternity. And I was just thinking this week about heaven being my home and how this world is not my home. And, and I was just thinking back this week to the number of times in my life when I've been uh, homesick. And have you ever been homesick where you're in an unfamiliar place and you're maybe in a foreign environment and you just want to go home? You just, um, I mean, it's great and you're having a good time and all, but you want to go home. You're homesick. And I remember when I was graduated high school, I went my first year in college, I went out to the East Coast uh, for a year in school. And um, I'm an L.A. boy. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Fifty degrees weather is a little bit chilly for me. And I'm used to palm trees and sunshine. And I went out to the East Coast, and uh, no kidding, it was negative 20 degrees out there. And... It started snowing in Halloween and didn't let up until April. And I was like, what on earth is this place? I mean, I, don't, I haven't seen the sun in six months. And all my East Coast friends were out there throwing snowballs at each other, going like, what a, what a great day. And I'd be going, what's so great about it? I'm like, I'm so cold. <laughs> and I just remember wanting to go home just dreaming of the sun and the sand and Dodger dogs and sitting on the 405 freeway and all those things. 
I just, I wanted to go home. And I remember getting on the airplane on winter break and flying out over LAX and looking out the window and seeing that beautiful smog-filled skyline of LA and just being so happy that I'm home, that I was home. Have you ever been homesick? Do you know what it's like to, to be in an unfamiliar place and to, and to long to go home because your heart isn't home? Well, what we've been learning in this series is that this world is not our home, that this is a foreign place for us as believers. We, the Bible says we're aliens and strangers here. This world is hostile to our faith. It's hostile to our love for Christ. It's hostile to everything that we stand for. And as much as the Lord has blessed us here and has given us things to be thankful for, we, we long to go home. We're homesick. And we can't wait for that day when the Lord will take us to be with Himself for all of eternity. Um, I did some uh, thinking about this and I was... Um, just uh, thinking about the whole idea that being homesick is, is not just wanting to be in a familiar place, right? It's, it's really you want to be with the ones that you love. And I remember a few years ago I went to, on a mission trip to Kazakhstan. Many of the leaders here have gone there. And if you've been there to Kazakhstan, you know it's like almost literally halfway around the world. I mean, it's as far as you can go around the world without coming back. And I think if we drill up straight down this morning we would meet our brothers in Kazakhstan and I just remember the hardest part about that trip it wasn't the food it wasn't the culture it wasn't the ministry it was really uh, being so far away from my loved ones Uh, just being away from my wife and being away from my children and um, I don't know if I'm a wimp or what but my heart ached to go home and because home was where my loved ones were. And as believers, we long to go home. We long to go home not just because home is a wonderful place and heaven will do wonderful things and we'll be given a resurrected body and we'll walk on a resurrected earth and all those things are true, but the core reality of it is that heaven is where our loved ones are. Heaven is where Jesus is and as Christians we love Jesus supremely more than anything in this world and heaven is where those who love Jesus are and we love Jesus and we love those who love Jesus and we want to go and be where our loved ones are let me ask you this morning are you homesick for heaven are you longing to be in the place where Jesus is Have you set your affections there? Are you looking forward to that glorious day when you'll get on that, maybe we could say a heavenly airplane, and take that journey home to be with the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity? Are you longing for heaven? The truth is we struggle with this sometimes because maybe the illustrations I've given you so far don't do justice to the dynamic that we experience as believers. Because the truth is that heaven is our home, but none of us have ever been there. I mean, when I was on the East Coast, I, I knew what it was like to be in Los Angeles, and I knew what it was like to experience home and 
When I was in Kazakhstan, I knew what it was like to be with my wife and my children, and I had experienced that, and so I longed for that because I had already experienced it and had it in my memory. But none of us have actually been to heaven. And so maybe the dynamic is more like, let's say a boy grows up in somewhere in Asia and his parents leave Asia and come to the United States to start a new life, but they don't have enough money to bring him along. And so they come to Los Angeles, start a business, start saving up money, and he's raised in Asia by some relatives. And his father, over the years, writes him letters of how when he comes home, he's going to experience so many wonderful things. That when he comes home, he's going to go to Disneyland. And when he comes home, we'll take him to the Dodger games. And when he comes home, we'll do all these wonderful things and we'll see the sun and the sand and the beach. And it'll be just so wonderful when we finally come take you home. And as these years go by, he reads these letters with great enthusiasm and great excitement. And he looks forward to that wonderful day when his parents finally have enough money to send for him and when he does he gets on that plane letters in hand so excited to see this place called home even though he has never been there before and maybe that's more accurate to what the dynamic we feel as christians we we want to go home we we long for that place but we've never been there And so what we do is we read the letters that our Father has given to us in His Word and we read them with great excitement and with great anticipation and we trust in our Father's Word as to the descriptions He gives to us regarding our home called heaven. And we look forward to that day when our Father will send for us and to take us to be where He is. Well, this morning we want to read our Father's letter that He's written to us. This is a love letter He has given to us with kindness and compassion, a description of our future home. And to read His letter, I'd like for you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 this morning. As we read our Father's description of this place called home. If you've been with us in our series, we've started off with a basic definition for heaven. We saw that heaven will be a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth. We then moved last week to this whole idea of an intermediate state, the the time period that follows physical death and yet precedes physical resurrection. We saw that that will be a time and a place so glorious, the scripture says it will be paradise We'll be in the direct presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in a place without sin, and yet we will await even better and more beautiful and more glorious things which are to come. Now this morning, as we go to Revelation 21, we're going to fast forward in the timeline. We're going to move past the time of the resurrection. We're going to move past, uh, if you're familiar with eschatology, we'll We'll move past the seven-year tribulation. We'll move past the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. We'll move past the second coming of Christ and the final judgments. And we'll go directly to Revelation 21, which is the creation of the new earth. And this earth is going to be our future home. 
And our Father has lovingly given to us a beautiful description of it that while we are here on this earth, our hearts may be encouraged to persevere in our Christian lives and to love Christ supremely. Let's begin reading in chapter 21, verse 1. The Apostle John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. And He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death, and there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of light without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Fast forward to chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of a street. And on either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. This morning I'd like for us to look at five features of the new earth, which is our future home. Five features of the new earth that we as believers in Christ may turn our hearts toward home. As we go into this study, let me do a brief work of theology with you, that you understand this setting. And what I just want to point out as we go into this passage is that throughout Scripture there is an inseparable connection between man and the earth that he walks on. The two are inseparable and intertwined. Man has always been made to live on an earth. Go back to Genesis and we see that man was made out of the earth. God formed him from the dust of the ground. When God created man, God placed him on the earth to live. And while he lived on the earth, he drew his sustenance out of the earth. And when man dies, he goes back and returns to the earth there to arise from the earth on the day of resurrection. All throughout Scripture we see man's inseparable connection 
with the earth he walks on. So we're not surprised when we get to the eternal state in Revelation chapter 21 that we see man placed on an earth. It is a new earth, but it is an earth nonetheless, an earth as real and as physical and as tangible as the earth that we walk on, yet free from the effects of sin and the curse. And this passage unfolds for us five features of this new earth, and we'll look at these together. The first feature is a physical feature. And what we see on the new earth is there will be no more sea. There will be no more sea. Chapter 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. There is no longer any sea. Turn your attention to that phrase, heaven and earth. It's simply Genesis 1.1, a designation for the created order, the created universe. When John says in verse 1 that the first heaven and the first earth passed away, what he's talking here is about the destruction, some would say the disintegration of the present created order, which is the earth the planets, the moon, the stars, the entire universe, the entire created order. John says in verse 1 that this entire created universe passes away. It's gone. Some have said that this describes the violent termination, the violent uncreation, the annihilation of the present sin-cursed universe. It passes away. And if you skip back to chapter 20, verse 11, we see that this passing away is connected with the event of the final judgment of unbelievers. In chapter 20, verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. This is where theologians get this whole idea of annihilation, disintegration, uncreation. Uh, Not just that it's destroyed, but the material remains, but it goes out of existence. And just as quickly as God made the present creation, God sends it out of existence. And it flees away and no place was found for it. It's gone. And so in chapter 21, verse 1, John says the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And his eyes open and he sees a new heaven and a new earth. Once again, this would include an earth, but it would also include the whole idea of the universe, another created order, this time free from the effects of sin and the curse. And the first thing that John notices about this new earth is a physical characteristic. There is no longer any sea, verse 1. And a lot of ink has been spilled about this. A lot of discussion has been made. What does John mean by there's no longer any sea? 
And some people have said what he means is that there's no more uncertainty. Some say that the sea is an emblem for terror, so there's no more fear. Some say that the sea is a, is a symbol for uh, man's loss of dominion on the earth, so it means that man's going to take dominion over the earth. And a lot of discussion about this phrase, there's no longer any sea. You say, Dan, what do you think that this means? Well, I read my Bible, I did my hermeneutics, I did my Greek study, and I came to this conclusion. What it means is, there's no longer going to be any sea. That's what it means. This is why I went to seminary, so I could do fancy Bible interpretation like this. I mean, there's, there's not going to be a sea on the new earth. Pretty clear to me. John sees the new earth and he sees a physical characteristic of this new earth. It is no longer a water-dominated planet. Unlike the present earth, which is 75% water, in which water separates the nations and the continents from each other, John sees the new earth and he sees that it is no longer dominated by water. You say, wait a second, Dan, is there going to be water on the new earth? There sure is. Chapter 22, verse 1 says there's going to be a river of the water of life, clear as crystal. It's going to come down from the throne of God. We know that rivers go everywhere. Rivers turn into streams and turn into ponds and turn into possibly lakes. So we would expect that there would be bodies of water on the new earth, maybe even large bodies of water. But what John is making the point here is that there's no longer be a water-dominated planet. It's a new earth. And that newness is not just in time, it is in quality. There is a newness about it. It is unlike the old earth in that there is no longer any sea. Now some Bible teachers have speculated, and I would think that this is a good speculation, that this present earth may be dominated by water as a lingering effect of the worldwide flood in Genesis chapter 6. I can't be dogmatic about that, but I would think that that's a reasonable conclusion. If that is so, then the new earth would be a reversal, a return to the Edenic qualities of the, this earth before the effects of sin, in which water no longer dominates the planet. And so John simply says, the first thing I saw about the new earth is a physical characteristic. There is no more sea. Let's look at a second feature of the new earth. Physically, there will be no more sea. And then the second feature is a spiritual feature. A spiritual feature. On the new earth, there will be no more curse there will be no more curse skip forward to chapter 22 verse 3 says this very plainly and there shall no longer be any curse and the throne of god and of the lamb shall be in it and his bond servant shall serve him now this takes us all the way back to genesis chapter 3 where god placed a curse on the earth the earth that we live on has a curse on it. God cursed the ground of the earth because of Adam's sin. 
And in Genesis 3.17, God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow of you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We know very specifically here that God did not place a curse on man's work, but that God placed a curse upon the ground upon which man's work takes place. God cursed the ground, and from this point on, Adam's work no longer was fulfilling and satisfying and creative and thrilling. He no longer felt that unbridled creativity that he would have felt in the Garden of Eden where he worked in the garden and he cultivated the land and he felt the joy of productive labor in the garden. But from this point on, because of the curse, Adam's work becomes burdensome and and filled with toil and frustration and he works from the sweat of his brow upon the earth that does not yield its fruit easily. All of this is because... God placed a curse upon the earth and he cursed the ground and said the ground will no longer yield its fruit easily for you. As we go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, we see the effects of the curse have been conquered through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, John says, there shall no longer be any curse. The curse that was placed on the old earth will be removed and there will no longer be this effect on the new earth. What then can we expect to find on the new earth? We expect to find productive labor, satisfying work, joyful creativity. We expect to find not an eternity of inactivity because that wasn't Adam's experience in the garden, but an eternity of joyful, creative fulfilling expression in productive labor. There was nothing inherently wrong with work, but God placed His curse on the ground that Adam worked on. John says that on the new earth there will be no more curse. No more curse. And chapter 22, verse 3, indicates for us that there will be productive labor on the new earth because he says that the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and His bondservant shall serve Him. And service implies productive labor. But this labor will be joyful and fulfilling and sweet. I think all of us understand that there are at times in life where we feel the inherent goodness of work, the inherent joy of work. Uh, there's been times in my life where, you know, I have a big pile of work on my desk and I drink a large cup of coffee and just get to work, you know, and just just hammer at it and I'll be getting a lot done and just be like, man, you know, I'm a machine. I can, I'm just cranking here, just so productive. I feel so good. And, you know, I'll say to my wife, you know, look at me. I'm so, such a hard worker, so productive. And, you know, she'll be like, you know, too much coffee, like next time decaf and and we'll feel this 
We all know what that's like to be productive and to feel the inherent goodness of work. And we also know what it's like in this life to feel the frustration of work and the toil of work and the burden and scratching out an existence and keeping ourselves afloat by the sweat of our brow. And what you need to picture on the new earth is all the joy of being a productive being without any of the frustration. Think back if you're artistic to last time you painted a beautiful painting and felt that sweet satisfaction. Or maybe you're a musician and you, you played a beautiful song and, and it was so sweet to your heart. Or maybe you're a doctor and you were part of healing someone who was, who was sick and you felt that joy of being part of that process. Or maybe you're, you're in law and you, you want a big case and you, you felt that joy of accomplishing something. Or maybe you built something in your life, a, a house, and you've, you've labored and you've, you saw the frames go up and you knew that there's joy in that labor. And that is what we can expect to find on the new earth is all the sweetness of work without any of the frustrations. I thought this week about all the people who will be out of work in heaven. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm one of them. Pastor's going to be out of work. There's no one left to teach. Missionaries are going to be out of work. No one left to evangelize. Policemen are going to be out of work. No more crime. Lawyers are going to be out of work. No more people suing each other. and Insurance people. No more calamity. Doctors. Sorry, you're going to be out of work. No more disease. But I thought about this whole idea of people being out of work, and I believe there are some people who won't be out of work. Maybe young people think about this when you think of a future career. Because <laughs> there, there are some careers that maybe you'll have a job in heaven. Possibly gardeners will still have a job in heaven. I believe possibly chefs, because I think there's going to be food on the new earth. Jesus ate in his resurrected body, and... The food down here is pretty good. I can't wait to taste that heavenly physical food. Worship leaders may still have a job because there's always going to be worship for all of eternity. Engineers, I think we might build things. Government officials, because Jesus indicates there'll be cities. There's at least one city in heaven, the New Jerusalem. There are possibly others, and he indicates in other scriptures that certain believers will rule over them. You see, even though there's a large class of people who will be out of work in heaven, there's other classes of people who may still have a job. And I believe Scripture indicates to us that the job that we're given in heaven corresponds to our faithfulness of our life here on earth. And the more faithful we've been with our responsibilities here, the more privileged the responsibility we'll have on the new earth. But there will be no more curse, no more frustrating difficult labor, only productive, joyful, creative work. A third feature on the new earth. We looked at a physical feature, no more sea, a spiritual feature, no more curse. The third feature is a relational feature, a relational feature. On the new earth, there will be no more separation, no 
more separation. Chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. In chapter 22, verse 3 says, The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. You see, on the new earth, there will be no more separation between us and God. Sin causes separation between us and our relationship with God, But on the new earth, sin will have been taken care of through the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll be not only freed from the penalty and power of sin, but the very presence of sin. And therefore, we will be able to enjoy God without any hindrance or without any separation. We will spend eternity growing in our love and enjoyment and joy and satisfaction in God. Now look at chapter 21, verse 3 for a minute. and This is so wonderful. I just want you to note this phrasing very carefully. John says that the voice told him, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Now just circle that word tabernacle in your mind for a minute. And let me ask you a question. In the Old Testament economy, when God dwelt with His people in a tabernacle, Did God take man up to be with him? Or did God come down to be with man? I think if we all remember the Old Testament tabernacle and the nation of Israel, the idea there wasn't that God raptured Israel up and took him up into heaven and said, you'll be with me. But the concept and the picture of the tabernacle was that God came down to earth and his presence dwelt with his people in a special way in the tabernacle. Now this is beautiful because this is what we see on the new earth. The new earth is not God taking man up to be with him. But if you can believe it, it's just right here in scripture. God tabernacles with man. God comes down to the new earth and dwells with man. The verse says, the tabernacle of God is among men. Note that it doesn't say that man is among God, but it says God is among men. And he shall dwell among them. I believe if you take the plain meaning of the scripture, what it is teaching us is that the eternal state is not that man is taken up into a non-earthly environment to be with God, but that God creates an earthly environment for man to dwell on and then comes down to this earth to dwell with man for all eternity. Now you look at that and you just think, what infinite kindness of God What infinite compassion of God, what infinite grace and love of God that He should dwell with us in this way. But if you look at Scripture, this is the theme of how God dwelt with His people in all of Scripture. 
In the Garden of Eden, God came down and dwelt with Adam and walked with him in the cool of the day. In the nation of Israel, God's presence came down to the tabernacle and came down to the temple and dwelt with his people on the earth. In the Gospels, God the Son came down to earth and walked with us in human flesh. And in the church age, God the Spirit dwells among us in His people, the church, so that our bodies are literally temples of the Holy Spirit. You see, the biblical pattern is not that God takes man up to be with Him, but God comes down to dwell with us. And so we're not surprised that when we go to the eternal state, we see these words. Not that God creates a new earth and then raptures man up out of the new earth to spend eternity with him, but he creates the new earth and then he comes down and tabernacles with his people for all eternity. And so it says, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be among them. And if you skip forward to chapter 22, Verse 4 says, They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. No more separation. No more separation. Sin and curse have been lifted. And in this sense, heaven and earth become really one, because heaven in the presence of God comes down to dwell on the new earth for all of eternity. And the scripture here says, we shall see his face. It seems that in our future resurrected physical bodies, we'll be given that capacity to actually see the face of God and not die. You may remember God said to Moses, no man can see my face and live, but it seems that on the new earth, our resurrected bodies will be given this capacity. How glorious is this? How magnificent will it be to see the face of God and to be able to behold the face of God without perishing and to know the ultimate fulfillment of all our hopes and dreams and to be utterly satisfied in our relationship with God and to enjoy Him forever in a continuing, progressive relationship as God unfolds to us the riches of His grace for all of eternity. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, but our relationship with God for all of eternity will not be a, a moment of stasis where we behold God and then we never grow again for all eternity. But the biblical concept is we will see His face and then for all of eternity as the years unfold and as the eons go by, we will continually grow and increase in our enjoyment and satisfaction of our relationship with God. On the new earth, there will be no more separation. No more separation. And we will enjoy God forever. A fourth feature. A fourth feature. We looked at a physical feature, a spiritual feature, a relational feature. Fourthly, an emotional feature. An emotional feature. On the new earth, there will be no more sorrow. No more sorrow. There will be no more seed, no more curse, no more separation. And then emotionally, there will be no more sorrow. 
No more sorrow. Chapter 21, verse 4. God Himself shall be among them, and He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What John sees here is that on the new earth there will be no more sorrow. No more sorrow. Once again, I want you to note the careful wording of this text, verse 4. It would have been easy for John to write, you know, like, once we get to eternity, God says, no more crying. Everybody be happy. And with a fell swoop of his arms, just wipes away all sorrow, and it's all gone, banished forever. But would you notice the, the individual, personal, tender, Expression of this text, verse 4. It says, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. The word tear there is singular. The picture here is not that God um, takes a cosmic handkerchief and in one fell swoop wipes away everyone's sorrow of millions of people who ever lived. But the idea here is that he takes each individual believer and notices each individual sorrow and he tenderly, compassionately wipes each tear away. You see, when my daughter's crying, If I'm being kind as a father, I don't just say to her, no, stop crying. No more sorrow. All gone. Happy. Hey. I admit, like, I've done that at, at some times. You know, like, just stop crying. You know, stop. But if I'm being kind as a father, I'll take her in my arms. I'll find out what's wrong. You know, somebody stole a Care Bear or something. And I'll find out what's wrong and I'll take a napkin and I'll wipe away her tears. And you see, that's what John's saying here, verse 4. God doesn't just generally sweep all sorrow under the rug. God takes each individual tear and He wipes them away. And He notices the sorrow of your life. And he notices the times when, when you mo- moisten your pillow top with tears. He notices your tear of disappointment, your tear of despair. He notices your tear when, of sickness, of calamity, of uncertainty. He notices each individual tear. And as the new earth is created, he tenderly and compassionately wipes each one away. And then John says, there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. You know, there's two types of sorrow in this life. There's quiet sorrow and there's loud sorrow. 
There's a type of sorrow that you're in private and you may have a few tears in your eyes. And then there's the type of sorrow that is public, that there's loud mourning and crying where the pain of life overwhelms us and we have to, to wail and shout and express our emotions. And John says here, it's all going to be gone. No more tears. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. All these things have passed away. That's the emotional feature. J.C. Ryle has spoken to us believers and he said this, Who is here that is not acquainted with sorrows? It came in with thorns and thistles that Adam's fall. It is the bitter cup that all must drink. It is before us and behind us. It is on the right hand and the left. It is mingled with the very air we breathe. Our bodies are racked with pain and we have sorrow. Our worldly goods are taken from us and we have sorrow. We are encompassed with difficulties and troubles and we have sorrow. Our friends forsake us and look coldly on us and we have sorrow. We are separated from those we love and we have sorrow. Those on whom our heart's affections are set go down to the grave and leave us alone and we have sorrow. We find our own hearts frail and full of corruption. That brings sorrow. We are persecuted and opposed for gospel's sake and that brings sorrow. We see those who are near and dear to us refusing to walk with God and that brings sorrow. Oh, what a sorrowing, grieving world we live in. But blessed be God, there shall be no sorrow in heaven. There shall not be one single tear shed within the courts above. There shall be no more disease and weakness and decay. The coffin, the funeral, the grave, and the dark black mourning shall be things unknown. Our faces shall no more be pale and sad. No more shall we go out from the company of those we love and part asunder. That word farewell shall never be heard again. There shall be no anxious thought about tomorrow to mar and spoil our enjoyment. No sharp and cutting wounds to wound our soul. Our wants will have come to a perpetual end and all around us shall be harmony and love. O Christian brethren, what is our light affliction when compared to such an eternity as this? Shame on us if we murmur and complain and turn back with such a heaven before our eyes. What can this vain and passing world give us better than this? This is the city of our God himself when He will dwell among us. See what John says is, I saw the new earth, and there was no more sea, there was no more curse, there was no more separation, there was no more sorrow. And there's a fifth and final feature that John sees in the new earth. And I believe this may be the most important feature of all. And we'll call this a practical feature or a personal feature. Chapter 21, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Chapter 22, verse 11 says this, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and let the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. 
On the new earth, there will be no more sea, there will be no more curse, there will be no more separation, there will be no more sorrow. And the fifth practical feature is that on the new earth, there will be no more chances. No more chances. Or could I say, there will be no more opportunities to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The day of salvation will be over. In the sense, there will be no more opportunity to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. The open invitation that is extended to the whole world today will come to an end. The free offer of grace in the cross of Jesus Christ that is offered to all regardless of age, race, ethnicity, gender, that day will come to an end. And what John sees on the new earth is a practical feature. That who you are when the new earth is created is who you will be for all of eternity. And where you are when the new earth is created is where you will be for all of eternity. There will be no more chances. No more opportunities. No more invitations. That day is done. And what you have done in time will determine where you will spend eternity. And so John says in chapter 21, verse 8, For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Talking here about all these people who lived in sin in their lives and never repented and never believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. He's not saying that these people can't be forgiven. He's saying that these are a class of people that they lived in these sins and never were forgiven. And he says their part will be the fire and brimstone in the lake of fire. John saw the final judgment of unbelievers in chapter 20, verse 11. He saw the great white throne, and in verse 12, he saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. He saw that books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Who is sufficient to speak of these things? these eternal realities, both the eternal joys of heaven on the new earth and the eternal horrors of the lake of fire which will burn for all of eternity. And yet, 
This is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. The Word of God clearly states that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of life is eternal life in Jesus Christ. That it is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. And the Word of God clearly states that today is the day of salvation. That you have come to this point in your life where you understand that you are a sinner before a holy God and that you deserve death because of the just punishment of your sin and that if you get what you deserve, you will spend eternity in this place called hell, burning in the lake of fire for all eternity. And if you cry out for mercy and ask God to forgive you through the cross of His beloved Son, Jesus The Word of God clearly states, you shall be forgiven because this is the day of open invitation. And God invites all to come and to be saved no matter who you are or what you've done. He will plunge your sins into the depths of the sea. He will take them from you as far as the east is from the west. But the Word of God clearly states that if you harden your heart against this good news, you will go to hell. You will go to hell. And if you go to hell, there will be no more chances. There will be no more chances. This day is done. And where you will be is the place that you will spend eternity. And so God says today, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. God says today, Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. God says today, Revelation 22, verse 17, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost but the word of god also says that if you spurn this offer and you spurn god's offer of grace there will come a day when that opportunity will be over and there will be no more chances and you will spend eternity in the lake of fire And there will be no escape and no relief. Many people picture hell as a place where unbelievers gather together and enjoy camaraderie over their misery. That is not the biblical picture of hell. The rich man in Luke chapter 16 was alone. I believe one of the most terrible and horrifying things about hell is it will be an eternity of aloneness. You will have no one to keep you company. You will have no one to comfort you. You will only have the company of of an eternally screaming conscience which will scream your guilt at you without relief and without end. Oh, the Bible says, why? Why? Why would you spurn this free offer of grace? Why? God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but God says, I am a just God, and I will not leave the guilty unpunished. 
I have provided for you a sacrifice by which you may be saved. This morning I want to ask you, Scripture says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Have you received God's offer of grace in Jesus Christ? Because the truth is, you're not guaranteed tomorrow, and you're not guaranteed next week. The rich man, there's a parable of another rich man that Jesus told that he said, I have all these years to enjoy all the things that I have saved up for myself. And God says, you fool. You don't know that tonight is the night your soul will be required of you. Today is the day of salvation. Examine yourselves. See if you are in the faith. Have you truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you do, the message this morning is very simple. Your home is the new earth. And no matter what happens in this life, you can rejoice. Because you're going to spend eternity there. But if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible is equally clear. You have no reason to rejoice this morning, no matter how great your life is going. You have reason to be afraid. And God invites you to come and receive forgiveness for your sin. Physically, there will be no more sea. Spiritually, no more curse. Relationally, no more separation. Emotionally, no more sorrow. Practically, no more chances. And what God simply says in this letter that He's written to us is, Dear believer in Christ, this is your home. This is your home. This world is not your home. Don't be surprised if you're disappointed in this life. Don't be surprised if you find that life in this world is difficult and frustrating and filled with toil. Don't be surprised if sorrow engulfs you. This world is not your home. One day God will take you home to be with Himself. And so I leave you with the words of Stephen Curtis Chapman, which this is a song that's meant much to me, my thoughts on heaven. He wrote this, To all the travelers, pilgrims longing for a home, from one who walks with you on this journey called life's road, it's a long and winding road, from one who's seen the view and dreamt of staying on the mountains high, one who's cried like you, wanting so much to lay down and die, I offer this. We must remember this. We are not home yet. We are not home yet. Keep on looking ahead. Let your heart not forget. We are not home yet. We are not home yet. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, thank you for this loving letter that you've written to us that we may know what our future home is like. And Father, we treasure each word. 
We look forward to the day when you will call us to go home. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.